He uttered one word, a word that encompassed all the hatred and fury of his despair, a word upon which the whole of his being was focused, as though there were nothing else in all the world but his hatred and the word. And the word was... Thor! I am Miles Stokes. And I am Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 8 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. Dude, so Elizabeth, you know how at the beginning of the last episode we talked about how we'd really been waiting to do that one since the start? I think in a way we kind of have been feeling the same way about this one as well. I feel like I didn't really know how much I wanted to do this. Like, I've read bits and pieces of Frog Thor, and of course I've always heard about it, and I've seen the the photos, but nothing could prepare me for the utter delight of reading and taking notes on this arc. Yeah, I feel like Walter Simonson is known for Beta Ray Bill, he's known for The Executioner's Last Stand, and he's known for Frog Thor. I was seriously giggling while I was uh, writing down my notes, and I kept wanting to text you to either be like, thank you, or jokingly be like, what have you gotten me to read? (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, Elizabeth, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. My partner, Anna, just had the grand opening for her shop that she started. She started her own business. I'm very proud of her. That is awesome. We had a karaoke machine. It was ridiculous and pretty great. That sounds amazing. What did you sing? Uh, Let's see. So my go-to is Gay Bar by Electric Six, but there wasn't a big library, so I just started with Born to be Wild. I think I did some um, Heart as well. Always a good choice. I've heard you do Born to be Wild. I would love to hear you do Heart. (laughs) Maybe not quite as good as the growly 70s male vocalist, but I do my damnedest. That and Blondie, Heart and Blondie. Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) We'll see. When we do karaoke, we're going to have to both do Blondie in honor of Lorelai. Or just in honor of old Goldilocks himself. Oh, that's true, too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm just imagining Thor Odinson fronting Blondie, and I mean, it would be a sacrifice in some ways, but also kind of amazing. He'd be bringing joy to the masses, you know, that'd be part of safeguarding Midgard. That's true. Anyway, speaking of Midgard and Asgard and uh, segues... We were on a show. Actually, it came out a couple of weeks ago, but we were on Multiversal Q, which is a podcast about all the different multiverses. Yes, and the issue we covered was Jim Valentino's What If the X-Men Had Stayed in Asgard, which actually crosses over with this very arc we're about to read through. It totally does. So yeah, you should check that out. We also have a couple of other guest spots on other shows that we're going to be on. Those aren't out quite yet as we're recording this, but once they are, we'll tell you about them and you should listen to them because, well, we thought they were pretty good. Yes, if you're not already following us on Twitter or Facebook or Tumblr, uh, you can get further updates on that there. But in the meantime, we have things to tell you about. Now, it's not just Frog Thor, because we do have a single issue before the Frog Thor uh, epic, I'm going to go ahead and say epic, begins about a guy named Curse. Interestingly enough, even though Curse is a Thor villain, even though Curse in his previous incarnation first appeared in this run of Thor... The issue where he appears in this arc, 363, that's his fourth appearance as Curse, because this was taking place right around Secret Wars 2. Elizabeth, do you want to talk about what that is? Oh gosh, I've read part of it. Secret Wars 2 is when a jerk 
named the Beyonder, who is all-powerful and yet knows very little of humanity, comes to mess up all the superheroes and ask them a bunch of inane questions. Wait, is that the one where uh, the Beyonder learns to go to the bathroom? In fact, Spider-Man teaches an all-powerful being to poop because comics. (laughs) Secret Wars 2, number two. Exactly. (laughs) I hope that was actually in Secret Wars 2, number two. I don't remember what issue it was in. (laughs) I I do have either some or all of this. I remember I read it. um, I got in-school suspension at the end of the eighth grade for writing a swear word in somebody's yearbook. And I was supposed to have in-school suspension for the first day of ninth grade. So I came to totally prepared with Secret Wars 2, but then when I got there, they were like, oh, you remembered after the long summer, you get to go to class. Oh, so you brought Secret Wars 2 for nothing. I know. Plus, that was my only chance to really have some sort of bad girl cred in high school. Thanks a lot. Oh, man. (laughs) We can just go back in time and give your younger self a switchblade or something. Yes. (laughs) Well, anyway. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The point is... Secret Wars 2 was going on at this time and basically derailed the entire Marvel Universe for a while. Almost every book had some kind of a Secret Wars 2 tie-in, and this is no exception. And specifically, the events we see here began in Secret Wars 2, number 4, where the Beyonder, you mentioned he was trying to understand humanity, he's trying to learn about desire, and he finds the creature in all of the universe with the greatest desire, and that is a dude named Algrim the Strong that you may remember from the Fair Folk Dark Elves arc. He was the guy that fell into a bottomless pit with Thor, but Thor escaped. Yeah, it turns out he was still alive, and he just hated Thor a whole lot at the bottom of the lava pit that he was somehow still alive in, and so the Beyonder gave him ultimate power to go hunt down Thor. He wanted to see how this desire would play out. Yeah, and then he just set him loose in the world and sat back to watch. And where we see him next is in Power Pack number 18. Once again, we have a Power Pack crossover here. And this just makes me need to read Power Pack. I swear, by the time we come back for the next episode, I will have read at least to Power Pack 18. I recommend it. It's a pretty great book. But yeah, Curse is rampaging through New York City because now Algrim the Strong is a being called Curse in this living red and yellow armor that looks really cool, actually. And uh, during the carnage... Margaret Power, the mother of the Power Pack, gets hit in the head with a rock and falls into a coma. And so the Power Pack fights Curse and manages to drop a construction site on him. Specifically, Jerry Sapristi's construction site that was destroyed when Thor fought Fafnir way back near the beginning of Simonson's run. Of course. And during these battles, Curse keeps seeing his opponents as different people from his previous life and keeps having these flashbacks. And I do like that because sometimes when the power pack crosses over, you're like, wait, how could these four kids possibly beat this villain that adult teams can't take out? Like that happens with uh, Sabretooth in the Mutant Massacre. But with this, you know, there's a reason he's distracted by children because he had children of his own. And so they beat him. And the next time we see him is in Secret Wars 2, number 6, where he bursts free of the rubble and fights Beta Ray Bill, because he thinks Beta Ray Bill is Thor, and he's got a big mad on for Thor, who he blames for getting knocked into the pit. Um, And he actually beats the hell out of Beta Ray Bill, and the only way that Bill escapes that is by turning into his Corbinite, non-horse-faced, less Thor-looking alter ego. And it just seems kind of unfair that Algrim holds Thor responsible. I mean, Thor fell in the pit, too. I mean, I guess he could have helped Algrim a little bit more, but he was obsessed with Lorelai. He had the the casket of ancient winters to save. Like, he had a lot going on. Well, you know, it's Algrim the Strong, not Algrim the Detail-Oriented or Algrim the Insightful. (laughs) 
That's true. It's right there in the name. Yep. And uh, although that right there, that insight you just had, that's going to actually be a pretty big deal later on. Oh, really? (laughs) So with that backstory and these many tie-ins out of the way, perhaps we should jump into Thor number 363, This Cursed Earth. So it starts like a fairy tale, Once Upon a Time, and it recaps Algrim the Strong's story as we already have. So he's been given ultimate power and set loose by the Beyonder. Oh, the Beyonder. That freaking guy. And that this, in fact, is where we hear the narration that opened this episode, which I kind of love. He uttered one word, a word that encompassed all the hatred and fury of his despair, a word upon which the whole of his being was focused, as though there were nothing else in all the world but his hatred and the word. And the word was... Thor! So Curse is continuing his rampage throughout Midgard. Now, Thor himself, as you may remember, is in Midgard because he and the Anharyar just finished their mission in Hell, and he's the only one who can get from Midgard back to Asgard easily, so he's volunteered to take the various mortal souls back to their original bodies to sort of unensorcel the Fair Folk's victims from way back in the Malekith Ark. Yes, and he enters on his chariot, and everything's golden, and he releases the mortals, and they're golden too as they streak toward the sky, toward their bodies, which made us wonder... Yeah, so what's the deal with the ones whose bodies turn to dust? Because remember, Eric Willis fed some of them mortal food, and so they don't have bodies anymore. So are those those souls just going to, like, wander the earth eternally? Well, and, I mean, what is even going to happen with the people who were still alive? Like, most of them were, like, policemen. Like, have they been held, you know, in prison somewhere or held for their own safekeeping? Are people going to believe them or think they were just temporarily insane? Like, what's going to happen to these people? Do you remember that old comic, Damage Control? Yes. Yeah, so for any listeners who aren't familiar, it was a comic that was about these people who cleaned up after superhero battles. And I wonder if they had sort of a social services division that dealt with stuff like this. That's a good point. You think they would have to in New York with all the battles and all the property damage and all the, you know, women in peril and children being saved from burning buildings that they would need to have some sort of resources in place. And I feel like this is far from the only time a group of New Yorkers has been possessed by supervillains. (laughs) It's true. They probably, what am I even worrying about? They have some totally down for these people. There's just something on all insurance policies in New York. It's a law. (laughs) Well, anyway, after Thor has completed his mission, he's wandering through Midgard trying to clear his head. Now, remember, he's still grievously wounded. His face is still in horrible shape, and he has part of his cape ripped off and tied around it. And he's recognized by a couple of homeless men in an alley while he's pondering. And the two homeless men basically accost him and ask, what have you done for us lately? Yeah, talking about how superheroes are all busy being high and mighty and fighting these world-ending threats without dealing with sort of systemic problems like poverty that perhaps are cause more of these threats than any kind of alien technology. I gotta say, I think they kind of have a point. I'm not saying it's Thor's responsibility personally, but maybe like the Avengers could, you know, donate some money or some volunteer time to help out here. Tony Stark, definitely. But I still feel like even though Thor's been in Midgard for a long time, he maybe doesn't have the hands-on knowledge or experience to deal with Midgardian politics. I don't know. I mean, he was Don Blake for a long time, and I'm sure Don Blake got to deal with a lot of the ridiculousness of, you know, preferential treatment for the wealthy and stuff like that. He would at least know some other doctors that would be good for, like, addicts and things like that for rehab facilities. I guess you're right. I'm just saying, like, Thor, you're already a hero, you do a great job, but maybe broaden those efforts a little bit. But in his current mental and physical state, Thor is incensed. Why, thou ignorant fools! 
Who art thou to despise those who have set their lives at hazard to safeguard this world and all who inhabit it? While ye slept here in safety, I stood in the halls of death itself. And he shows them his face, and they react in horror and run away. Now, remember, we still haven't seen Thor's face. We still haven't seen the wounds that Hela inflicted upon him with her hand of glory. And we actually never do. And I think that's a very good narrative decision on Walter Simonson's part. Yeah, like... I spent these commas kind of feeling half curiosity, half dread. Like in Wonder Woman with Dr. Poison, I was like, they wouldn't put that clanking face on her if it wasn't going to come off at some point. But they pull it off with Thor. Like, we do never see it. It's only implied how terrible it is. Exactly. So Thor's in bad shape. I mean, he's tired. He's injured. He's heartsick after all the stuff with the Lady Sif. And he's contemplating just calling it a day and leaving Midgard forever. Meanwhile, Power Pack and Franklin Richards have snuck out to Jerry Saprissi's construction site where they find Beta Ray Bill in his, a.k.a. less conspicuous form. Right, because you remember we were talking earlier about how Curse attacked Beta Ray Bill and the only way that Beta Ray Bill could convince Curse to leave was to dethorify himself. And uh, Katie Power gets a glimpse of Beta Ray Bill saying, Julie, look, he's not a human being. Which is hilarious, but a little bit hurtful, Katie. I mean, she's, <laughs> she's the youngest of the Power Pack. She doesn't know any better. It's true. But Bill and Power Pack trade notes and realize that they both fought Curse, and that Curse is after Thor. So Julie Power, who's the fastest of them, goes off to try to warn Thor, because, you know, Beta Ray Bill is really, really tough, and if Curse could take him out like that, Thor probably doesn't stand much better of a chance. But that is not the only threat hanging over Thor, as we see back in Asgard. Loki is gloating that his cosmic transmuter is fully charged and blasts a burst of energy toward a housewife ironing clothes on Midgard. And I gotta talk a little bit about the machine he uses to do so. It is like this giant playset-looking ray gun thing that's even got its own seat that he sits in and a cerebro-looking helmet that he puts on and crosshairs that go over one of his eyes even though he's aiming for literally a different world. That is pretty cool and overwrought. You know, I, I'm used to thinking of the Asgardians and like Loki is just using magic. And here it's like Loki has decided, I want as much technology as possible. Like he went to an Apple store and was like, this is the stuff. Like I need more stuff on me. Oh, man. He's got an iSorcery.com membership. <laughs> I really do enjoy, though, in Simonson's run and also definitely Jack Kirby's run, just how much technological weirdness there is in the Nine Realms. Well, often Asgardians are fascinated with Midgardian, you know, inventions and, and things that seem magical to Asgardians. So I guess it makes sense that they would kind of take some of those properties and try to do it themselves. Maybe. Or maybe it's just the very soul of Jack Kirby infused into their world. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure that Jack Kirby's house just looked like that. I like to think it did. Totally. Well, that'll be a big deal later. But back in New York, we have our own big deals going on because... The Beyonder is watching from afar as his creation curse is slashing across the sky to attack a contemplative Thor. At last, curse shall slay you and rest. And with a bacram, he smacks the hell out of Thor. And Thor fights back, and as he does, realizes that curse seems strangely familiar. Though you are greatly changed, no cosmetic cover can deceive the eyes of Thor. Algrim the Strong, is it not? Late of the realm of fairy. And Curse has a flashback and attacks again. Die, Thor! Die! 
And it looks like that might actually happen because, I mean, we've seen Thor wrestle Hela, we've seen him fight dragons, we've seen him fight Surtur. And this, I think, is the first time in the run that he's facing an opponent that is just clearly way, way more powerful than he is. Yeah, he's so powerful that Thor retrieves his belt of strength from his chariot to double his own strength. So the belt of strength, I mean, I I know that this is a mythological thing, but is there something else going on here? It seems like something, you know, that Thor might have seen on like late night TV and, you know, buy the belt of strength for $9.99. Or maybe like a skinny Thor was taking Jane Foster out for a date on the beach and like a great big bully kicked Asgardian sand in his face. And so Thor talked to Charles Atlas Eth to, you know, figure out what he could do. And it was the belt of strength. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Maybe he needed it as Donald Blake, you know. Oh, that could be. He'd be the strongest <laughs> surgeon of all time. <laughs> he could like close all kind of searchers with one hand. Sutures? It's, it's sutures. Sutures? Because I used to call sutures gotta, oh, sutures. Oh, my God. Now I'm ruined. I can never be a, a TV doctor. <laughs> <laughs> the greatest tragedy of all. Anyway, Thor knows that even though this will, in fact, double his strength, he's going to be almost unable to walk after he's done using it, but it's his only option. This issue is very good at getting across just what a threat curse is, and we're going to see certainly more of that. But of course, the Beyonder has to be even more of a jerk than he already has been because he just responds by making Curse even stronger and he beats Thor into the ground. Is this to be my epitaph? He died fighting for a world of contemptuous mortals who scorned him. But in the nick of time, Power Pack and Bill arrive, creating a diversion and renewing Thor's resolve. Like, what I really like about this is that clearly they create a diversion so that Thor can roll out of the way and they save him physically. But also their presence really bolsters Thor's emotions, you know, his feelings and renews his strength that way, too. And the Beyonder takes note of this, specifically the fact that they almost seem to be family, even though he knows that not all of them are. The Beyonder's still trying to understand humanity and figure out what makes them tick, and here's another data point. And Thor thinks he's figured things out. He sees heat as an Algrim-specific weakness. I mean, Algrim fell into a lava pool, and that seemed to take him out the first time, but I'm just saying, Thor... Lava's kind of an everyone-specific weakness. It's freaking lava, unless you're, like, one of those, um, what are they called, blargs from Super Mario World, the lava dragons? Like, you're not going to be hanging out in lava deliberately. <laughs> yeah, it's not like a beauty treatment for some supervillains, you know? Like, oh, I'm just going to relax here in this lava. It's pretty much going to kill or incapacitate everyone. Oh, now I'm just imagining one of those weird footbath things with all the fish that, like, nibble the dead skin off your feet, except <laughs> it's lava and it's blargs from Super Mario World. It's like a super awesome chemical peel. You know, you've been out in the sun, super villaining too much, you get a bunch of wrinkles, then it just burns it right off. Oh, make this happen. I feel like <laughs> the, uh, the Legion of Doom probably had one of those things in their base. Totally. So Thor comes up with a desperate plan. Katie Power, who shoots energy blasts, had tried shooting at Curse before, but she wasn't quite powerful enough to take him out. And so Thor and Beta Ray Bill realize Katie can absorb energy from the stuff around her. If she absorbs the energy from Mjolnir and Stormbreaker, the two mythical Asgardian Uru hammers, if she drains them dry, she could have enough power to destroy Curse. And maybe they'd all walk out of this. And this is a super disturbing panel for me to read, particularly because I have a two and a half year old daughter. 
So they are powering up this tiny kid with all this Asgardian power. And Katie is in pain. Like she's saying, ow, it hurts. And you hear Julie saying, oh, just hold on, baby. Just hold on. And then she shoots it all out at Algrim. And it looks like she kills him. Like they made little Katie Power kill a big, strong monster. So in Jane Miles Explain the X-Men, the Power Pack crossover a lot as well. And we just keep talking every time they do about what kind of therapy bills these kids are going to all have later in life. Because that's the thing with Power Pack. I mean, the book for a kid's book actually got pretty dark at times, which I think is great. I mean, when I was a kid, I always appreciated it when books didn't condescend to me, when they didn't try to pretend everything was, was flowers and sunshine. And Power Pack was good about that. Sure. I mean, I imagine being part of the larger Marvel Universe, you know, they were going to run into some pretty sticky situations. Oh, yeah. But it works. Curse is down. He has actually been defeated through the combined might of all of the Power Pack and Thor and Beta Rebill and the Belt of Strength. And the two hammers may be completely drained dry. Thor and Beta Rebill may not have their powers anymore. And at this point, Thor senses that there's someone behind all this and he calls him out. You don't have to shout. My hearing is excellent. So the Beyonder is impressed that Thor and Bill were willing to sacrifice their hammers to stop Curse, and they're nearly depleted. And the Beyonder restores their hammers, so they have even more to sacrifice, so he can observe humanity and their passions even more. He also says he can just send Curse back to Fairyland, which Thor points out, hey, that's gonna kill Curse, isn't it? Yeah, so Thor has a better idea. Send him to hell to wreak you know, a bunch of chaos on Hela. Oh, Thor. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Hela did screw Thor over pretty hard, so I can't fully blame him. And he points out that the one curse really should go after is Malekith, who's somewhere in the Nine Realms. Who knows? Maybe it's Hel. But both Thor and the Beyonder are pretty amused by the idea of sending curse to Hel, and so the Beyonder does. Now, Young Katie Power, she doesn't know much about Curse or Hell or the various lost souls and Hand of Glory-related wounds that Hela caused. All she knows is that if the Beyonder created Curse and Curse hurt their mom, it's the Beyonder's fault and she is furious with him. She actually says that she wishes she could disintegrate him, which the Beyonder replies, well, then you'd be like, Curse then, and that would be bad, wouldn't it? And then he starts to muse that maybe doing good is what makes somebody part of a family and that it's choosing to be good. And hey, he can choose it for everyone. The Beyonder makes a lot of very bad decisions. Yeah, that's a super ominous proclamation coming from someone with limitless power and limited understanding. So with that disturbing proclamation, the Beyonder restores the hammers and motors off, warning Thor not to kiss any ladies anytime soon? Huh, surely that won't be relevant anytime soon, right? And so in the aftermath of this conflict, Thor and Beta Ray Bill comfort a crying Katie Power, and Thor extends Sif's invitation to Beta Ray Bill for Bill to attend the All Thing, the big meeting that will choose the new leader of Asgard. And I do enjoy that even though when Bill was brought up in this context, Thor and Sif were sort of fighting, Thor has no ill will for Beta Ray Bill. Like, you know, even though they both love Sif, they're still just bros who are awesome to each other. Yeah, Thor is surpassingly mature about this, and you get the feeling that, of course, he really does consider Bill his brother, and he would enjoy having him there. So, Bill takes all the children home, and Thor returns to his chariot, preparing to himself return to Asgard, because there's a lot going on there right now. And he seems to be in much better spirit, saying, My time on Midgard has not been wasted, as well I knew in my heart. Mortals are as much my family as the gods. 
But suddenly, remember that housewife that Loki shot with power? She runs up and kisses Thor, who disappears in a foof. And the housewife suddenly has no idea what she was doing out there or what just happened. And she wanders off and Loki rejoices back on Asgard because Thor is now revealed to be a frog. And Thor being a frog marks the beginning of an epic amphibious story equal parts grandeur and ridiculousness and 1000% completely enjoyable. And as the next issue text tells us, not a hoax, not a dream, not an imaginary story. Next issue, Thor croaks. The story they didn't think we had nerve enough to tell. And that is in fact the title of Thor 364, Thor croaks. Oh man, but before we jump into Thor, remember back in Asgard, they're preparing the all thing. They're preparing this big meeting where they're going to figure out who is going to succeed Odin as the ruler of Asgard. And Frigga charges Asgard's banner bearers to summon everyone to the all thing. And I think she means like literally everyone, every single person in Asgard is supposed to show up here. Well, later they say that all the inns and all the hostels fill up, which makes me think, so they have innkeepers in Asgard like they have maids like do you tip your maids that you're in in Asgard it seems so so mid-guardian yeah you know you tip them with uh, a portion of the Rhinegold or something <laughs> an extra bottle of mead perfect and as Frigga is charging everyone with this grand task Heimdall the previous watcher of the Rainbow Bridge which is of course now shattered he's worried about Frigga she seems burdened I am all right Heimdall but just when you think you have lived so long that there is nothing new under the sun, the fates conspire to show you something beyond your wildest imaginings. A world without Odin, an Asgard without Odin. God damn. But people are still arriving because in a flash and a whirl, Beta Ray Bill appears. But of course, everyone mistakes him for Thor at first, which seems to happen to him a lot. Like, if I were Beta Ray Bill, I would totally have a complex about this at this point. Maybe he could just change his cape color. I think he'd look good with a blue cape, say. Yeah, or change his helmet, like, I don't know, bat wings? I, I'm not sure. Something. Something different. Well, regardless, he's surprised that Thor's not already here because Thor left first, and Sif herself starts to worry. Nothing short of death could have prevented Thor from returning here with all deliberate speed. Well, it wasn't death, but on the next page we see a glorious vision of Thor looking very imposing and masculine and majestic. And the narration saying that now he resembles... A rabbit. A rabbit. A frog. I've become a frog. And this and subsequent dialogue among the animals is translated from the vernacular into English for the benefit of those to whom the language of beasts is a closed book. And for me, that caption right there explaining, that's going to set the tone for pretty much this entire thing. It's ridiculous, and the book is going to play it completely straight. It's a beautifully balanced masterpiece. Now, Thor immediately realizes, okay... If a woman kissed me and I turned into a frog and I don't know why, I'm pretty sure Loki is somehow behind this. And I really appreciate this, much like when Thor was enchanted by Lorelai, like, nobody's dumbed down here. Thor doesn't show up for the all thing and everyone's like, something is wrong. If Thor turns into a frog, he's like, who did this? Loki. Like, everyone is still super smart and trying to figure things out. Exactly. And Thor figures Loki has sufficient reason to do something like this because the All Thing is coming and he knows Loki wants to be the next ruler of Asgard. So Thor, naturally enough, decides he must 
frog filtrate the Avengers Mansion with a super frog leap. Remember, he does still have his belt of strength and knocks over the sugar writing, help, I'm Thor in it. But Jarvis, the butler of the Avengers, is right there, as is young Franklin Richards, who's been staying in the Avengers Mansion. Franklin sees the frog writing in the sugar, but Jarvis rushes to the defense of the home that he lives in. Stand back, Master Franklin. There's no telling what sort of fiendish device the Avengers' enemies may have sent us disguised as a frog. It may even be one of the villains himself in costume. And Thor gets smacked out of the room, chased by the broom-wielding butler. The message is destroyed, and Jarvis does not believe Franklin that there was anything going on right there, saying Franklin was probably watching too many Saturday morning cartoons. Is this why the alternate Franklin Richards becomes uh, a villain? Because nobody took him seriously? I think that's it. He has all these special dreams where he can tell the future, and everybody's like, yeah, whatever, kid. I mean, he can read English. (laughs) It's just not that hard to do, you know? Alas, so this avenue clearly will not work. And as Thor ponders what to do next, I mean, his team, his superhero team, is not going to be of any help. Suddenly, a rat sneaks up on him and startles him, sending him leaping into traffic. And suddenly, we're in Frogger. That's exactly what I thought when I was reading this. So he's leaping desperately across the street while the rat follows. And Thor is about to flee, but remembers... I may only be a frog... But still, I am the warrior son of Odin! Still, I am Thor! And he puffs out his throat with a chug-a-rumph and kicks the crap out of that rat. Have at you, vermin! Thus the foes of Thor are always vanquished! And yes, this is just glorious. To see it, it's like, kick, kick, pummel, pummel, kick, kick, ah! Like, it is drawn and and narrated just like a regular Thor fight in all its epic glory, which makes it super ridiculous because it's a frog beating up a rat. It almost reminds me in a weird way of the first Ghostbusters movie, where it's utterly ridiculous in many ways, but part of the humor is in the fact that the movie plays everything totally straight, totally serious. The humor is in the contrast between what we're seeing and how it's presented. Well, and it's true that, you know, they respect the characters and Thor respects the frogs that he comes to meet here. So it does give it some weight, even while it's entertaining the heck out of us. And speaking of the frogs that Thor meets, hey, here's one. There's a frog named Puddlegulp nearby who was very impressed with the epic ass-kicking that Thor just unleashed upon that rat. And he explains that the rats are escalating their war with the frogs. They're trying to destroy the frogs and where they live, and he's wondering if Thor will help them. So you were asking, like, whether this is the frog version of Watership Down? Oh, man. I have a very hazy, terrible memory of watching Watership Down when I was like six or something and being totally horrified to see all these rabbits fighting to the death. But if, in case you're not familiar, Watership Down is an epic fantasy adventure novel by the English author Richard Adams, written in 1972, that features a small group of anthropomorphized rabbits that possess their own culture and mythology, much like the story we're about to see. Exactly. Uh, thankfully, this one is a little bit less nightmare-inducing for children. And as Puddlegulp explains what's happening, we see a zoomed-out map of the park, the Great Lawn, which shows well the scale of what the park is like to the frogs that live there. It's kind of like a Tolkien map. And I like that because this is a story by its very nature that is scaled down. It's about a war between rats and frogs in a specific park. And so, of course, that's going to be the world. That's going to be the equivalent of, like, you know, New York or possibly even the city of Asgard. Yeah, and scaling down sort of the field of battle kind of does make the stakes feel very high. 
Now, Puddlegulp also mentions that not only is this war going on, but there are also rumors of tunnels under the park that were opened up during a fireworks display, and there are dragons living in those tunnels. So they head to the Reservoir Gatehouse for their nightly meeting and stumble upon a fight. It's Ratso and the Rats versus King Glugwort and his bodyguard, Gullywumpf. I love these names, both the rats and especially the frogs. Freaking Gullywumpf! I could see sort of a Beast of Burden type uh, spinoff of this series easily. Oh, I would read the hell out of that. Yeah, um, if you haven't read Beasts of Burden, listeners, it's a uh, comic. It's written by Evan Dorkin and illustrated by... Jill Thompson. Jill Thompson. And it's delightful. It's about a bunch of, like, cats and dogs and stuff that protect a town. And it's really charming and, like, power pack, darker than you'd think it might be. It is. It's a full-on horror story. It's a horror graphic novel series, and it is fantastic. Now... Thor sees this fight. He's not really sure what to do. He's got a task. I mean, he's got to get back to Asgard to prevent Loki from taking over the Nine Realms. But at the same time, can he stand idly by when such injustice is occurring? Of course he can't. And he says, There are too many rats for Puddlegulp alone to drive off. And though I have urgent business elsewhere, I cannot abandon a host who offered a stranger the protection of his home. This fight has become Thor's own. See, this is another chapter of the Asgardian etiquette book that I'm sure is coming. You know, you got to wrestle the host, check. You got to protect your host from rats, check. Exactly. It's just step one, step two. And Thor does succeed. But alas, both Gullywumpf and the king have fallen. And with the king's dying words, he begs Thor, who he's convinced is the warrior he's been praying for, to stay and protect his people. Thor! My kingdom, my daughter, take whatever you want, but save our people. Promise, promise, promise. And thus falls a grand monarch. And it actually is genuinely tragic. I know it's just a frog, but still. (laughs) He's like sprawled on his back. It is very pathetic. It is a very sad, solemn moment. That is a regal frog corpse right there, though. By the way, Elizabeth, I I didn't know what you were going to do for that voice. I love it so much. I didn't know either. I was just like, kind of make it sound like riveting. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) But so they move on to the reservoir where they meet Princess Greensong, who is distraught at her father's death, and Bug-Eye, who mistrusts Thor and wants the princess and the throne for himself. Yeah, Bug-Eye is clearly our Loki analog right here. He's not trustworthy, he's scheming, he's manipulative, he's jealous of the warrior frogs. He's always saying sarcastic remarks, trying to sow seeds of discord. Yeah, this is totally, totally Loki. And we're introduced to yet another member of this froggy cast, that being Dulap, a frog spy. He reports that he has seen the rat army carrying rat poison to the reservoir where they're going to loose that poison to try to kill all the frogs. So this further convinces Thor to take part in, in helping these frogs because this will kill the humans too. Right, I mean, it's a reservoir. Rat poison? That's kind of everybody poison. Kind of like how lava is everybody's bane? Rat poison is everybody's poison. Thank God Thor realizes this. Oh, right. <laughs> now I'm just trying to think of how you could combine lava and rat poison. Yeah, yeah, that would be the worst drink ever. <laughs> I bet it would have a clever name, though. Doesn't rat poison make you forever thirsty? You know, so it would be like a drink that you always have to keep drinking. 
It's the thirsty burn. Yeah, yes, that's a good one. <laughs> Next time you go to the bar, for the love of God, don't order that. It'll kill you. <laughs> but anyway, Thor, of course, has a plan. He kills four rats as bait and drags them behind him as he goes to find the dragons. And I gotta say, I know it's a frog dragging rat corpses, but this looks genuinely intimidating. Yeah, it's totally badass. And so as Thor goes into those tunnels that Puddle Gulp was telling him about before, he leaves a trail of rat corpses. One, then another, then another, and he follows the increasingly bright light to an open chamber where he sees something kind of surprising. What could be more surprising than Thor's a frog? Well, let me tell you. A bearded man in a tam playing the flute for half a dozen alligators. I, I really have to wonder, like, what what's happening here? How did this occur? Is this like a what happens in the sewer stays in the sewers kind of thing? You know, maybe he just wanted some privacy. You know, the alligators are musical enthusiasts. Oh, man, I'm just imagining like an alligator barbershop quartet, which is adorable. They have the little bow ties and everything. <laughs> I love that four-part harmony. I can see it. I want this to be real. Totally. But Thor attempts to withdraw to figure out what the heck is up. But he is spotted, and the man plays a new song, which sends Thor hopping directly toward the alligators. Oh, man, we're in Frogger again. And we were wondering, does this only work on animals? Does it only work on the more cold-blooded animals or the amphibians? Would this work on, say, Thor himself or humans or cats? I'm just saying, this Piper guy could have a grand future as a truly unethical supervillain. He could, like, uh, team up with the Purple Man and, like, take over everyone and be a total jerk. Oh, God, I was just thinking about the Purple Man, and suddenly this got a lot darker. <laughs> Fortunately, so far, the jury's out on the Piper. It's true. And so that is the cliffhanger on which we end this issue. But once again, the next time text is kind of delightful. And it says, this issue is for Catapult, Carl Barks, and all the other heroes and villains of Duckburg. And I was thinking, okay, I know Carl Barks. He did a lot of Disney comics. He's an incredible cartoonist. I know Duckburg, of course. That's where the Donald Duck and Scrooge McDuck stories take place. But Catapult, what's up with that? So I googled and actually found an article written specifically about somebody wondering the same thing about this specific issue of Thor. Turns out there was a Donald Duck story where a frog named Catapult, not like a humanoid frog that could talk, but just like a frog frog, kind of like how Pluto's a dog dog instead of Goofy's human dog, um, the frog shows up. And then there's like a typhoon, and the frog has to go with a message to save a family member of Donald and his nephews, and so the frog is a hero. And apparently that is the inspiration behind Frog Thor. So thank you indeed, Catapult and Carl Barks. That is kind of amazing. I hope you took note of whoever wrote this article and can, like, friend them on Facebook or Twitter, because clearly you guys are two of a kind. Can we hang out and talk about Frogthor? I don't know <laughs> if we talk about anything else, but I could talk about Frogthor for, like, a long time. Well, there's a new DuckTales coming up. I'm sure you guys could, you know, segue into that. I hope Catapult's a character in it. <laughs> or just Frogthor. Totally. I mean, Disney does own Marvel. <gasps> Synergy. <laughs> However, that's not the only thing that happened in this issue because there was some stuff going on in Asgard as well, specifically with everybody's favorite badass little Asgardian girl, Hildy, and some of her friends slash siblings. So yes, Rolf, Hildy, and the children are playing a game. From what they say, it kind of sounds like Asgardian freeze tag when they happen upon Surtur's sword. And after this, I henceforth dub these children Asgardian Power Pack. I'm down with that. But yeah, this is Twilight. This is the great blade of the fire demon Surtur that was going to ignite the world. It just sort of fell when he was fighting Odin. And this thing is like skyscraper sized. 
Yeah, it is ginormous. And they realize there is a machine drawing power from it. But when they move away, the sore, the machine, it all vanishes, just leaving wavy edges. So Hildy realizes pretty quickly, just like Thor, she's no dummy. This has got to be Loki's doing somehow. Yeah, and they resolve to go tell Heimdall immediately. But at the moment, travelers are pouring into the shining streets of Asgard because the all thing begins. And Frigga raises Odin's golden scepter high into the sky, where basically like this Asgardian claw machine sort of picks it up and lifts it high above the crowd. And as amusing as that is, this is actually really cool because symbolically it works. Frigga was holding the scepter for Odin. She was sort of ruling Asgard in his absence, but now it's time to choose a permanent leader. And now the scepter isn't held by anyone except for this impressively skull-covered claw machine. It would be kind of cool if people decided who the Allfather was going to be by making this into an arcade game and putting in gold coins and seeing who could use the claw to pick up the scepter first. That'd be pretty rad. So the most into a competitive sporting-ish event I ever was was the first time I went to PAX, the video game convention. They have this thing called the Omegathon, which is like a video game competition. And the final event uh, in this case was the claw game. So there were thousands of people in this like amphitheater watching these two gamers try to get as many like, you know, Yoshi and Mario plushies as they could from the claw game and just like cheering and screaming as the claw just barely hung on to a Yoshi or just dropped a Dr. Mario at the last second. I I can't describe how epic this was. That sounds awesome. I would be so bad at that. I would just choke. (laughs) One of the people there was like way better than a person should be at the claw game. I think there was some kind of magic going on. Maybe they had one at home, you know, like that lucky kid who had like a Pac-Man game, like a console in their house. Would it really be lucky to have a claw game at home, though? Like, I feel like that would just make you bitter and resentful toward existence. (laughs) I guess it would depend on if you could get your parents to buy you lots and lots of toys. And then, you know, you had the key to open up the money. So you just get your money right back. Oh, man. I mean, I feel like that would teach you some other perhaps unhealthy lessons. (laughs) That's true, too. Fine. See, that guy who won, he was probably a jerk. That jerk, he didn't deserve his victory. (laughs) Uh, If you're listening to the show, person who won, nah, we're kidding. We think you're great. Yeah, you're probably awesome. Also, share your toys with us. (laughs) And talk to us about Frog Thor, along with that other guy. But back to the all thing. Loki speaks first, and he nominates Odin's Thane as the lawgiver. And this is a reasonable thing to do, because the Thane, like the guy who does all the law stuff anyway, uh, is is a really good and well-mustached person for this role. So Loki's already starting to portray himself as trustworthy. Look at these good decisions I'm making for the good of Asgard. And in the absence of his brother Thor, who is nowhere to be seen, Loki looks even better. Which, of course, makes Heimdall extremely suspicious. When the voice of Loki is still, look to thy weapons. For surely there is menace in the air. While Heimdall was struck by Loki's untrustworthiness, I was struck by the great Thane's costume, which is blue with a big gold star on it, making me wonder, is Thane Dazzler's Asgardian great-grandpa? Oh man, so when Dazzler gets all disillusioned when her dad dies, she'll like go off into the wilderness, and then she'll fall unconscious and get rescued by the Thane, and then they'll have to wrestle for dinner every night? That would be awesome. And she would absorb all the sound and use it to strengthen herself, and then he'd be all proud of her? This is charming, and it's totally not real, but I'm going to let myself be charmed anyway. Me too. Next, Hildy shows up, breathlessly telling Heimdall about the sword. Between that information and the fact that his eyes can't see Thor or or Balder, he asks her to go get the Warriors 3. Right, clearly something odd is afoot, but there's not much time left because the Thane calls forth the Sons of Odin to begin the All-Thing, and there's no Thor here. 
what will happen? We'll find out soon because now we're in Thor 365. Guess who's coming to dinner or it's not easy being green. Is it me or like most of the issue titles in this entire run kind of silly? They are having as much, at least as much fun as we are having reading it for sure. I mean, the intro text says, this issue, Thor leaps into a new secret identity, which of course I have to respond to as one that is probably better developed than Sigurd Jarlson. Oh man, poor Sigurd. Like every time we see his, his apartment, it's just like a mattress on the floor. Yeah, he's like a college student. I feel like he should at least have a blacklight poster up on the wall or something. I mean, can't he get his awesome, like, three-headed fish bed from Asgard down there? Oh, man, he'd have to find a friend with a truck, and it's so hard to schedule things, (laughs) and parking on the streets in New York is really hard. (laughs) You have to get, like, a special permit and everything. Boy, what a pain. All this red tape preventing the fish bed from entering the tiny apartment. But we open on Thor as a frog in the tunnels under New York, being compelled by the mysterious flautist to hop over a bunch of alligators toward the flautist, who we will now call the Piper. That sentence you just said has so much happening in it. It's just amazing. This is a complete joy to read, to transcribe, and to share here with you, podcast listeners. The caption tells us, Everything else you need to know will fill in as we go along. Guys, this is a real jumping on point. Jumping on Uh, point. uh, 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 uh. (laughs) Oh. Well, anyway, the Piper is curious and compels Thor, being a frog, toward himself. But Frog Thor, as he hops from alligator head to alligator head, has a plan. And he says, I must take the initiative as a true frog never could. What the? Slap. The strength of Thor is my birthright, which no magic can completely suppress. So Thor has completely jumped into the piper and kind of given a big splap right in the face uh, and took his magic flute away. This is good strategery, this is. Now, the piper flees, realizing that now these alligators are not his friend anymore. I feel kind of bad for the guy. They were having a good time. It's true. Why did Thor have to get in there and kind of mess everything up? Oh, yeah, to save New York from rat poison. I suppose there's that. So Thor lures the alligators to the surface with his dead rats, which totally works. Thor is now carrying a flute in his mouth and trailing an army of alligators. But meanwhile, a gang of rats is dragging a bag filled with rat poison to the reservoir. But it's a trap. Because suddenly they're surrounded by hundreds of fighting mad frogs. And this reminds me of nothing so much as that scene during the Cert War when the Harrier pull back and lure the fire demons away from their portal toward the World Trade Center. And then the armies of Asgard, who were in the shadows of the World Trade Center, like come down upon them like a hammer down upon an anvil. It's the same thing going on, except this time it's frogs and rats. Once you said that, it all clicked into place for me. And I really love how a lot of times in these comics, there are kind of parodies or mirror images of past things. Like during Cert War, there was Hildy and the Troll. Like there are all these kind of mini echoes of other stories that have these really cool parallels. It's so great. And it is legitimately epic. I mean, the way these panels are drawn, like, it looks like it's something straight out of Cert War, straight out of this gigantic superhero battle with gods and demons and the world itself at stake. And the fact that it is just frogs and rats fighting in a park, like, almost doesn't matter because there's so much earnest intensity to it. Absolutely. But speaking of gods back in Asgard... The Thane is calling a third and final time for Thor while Loki stands there smugly, but suddenly Thor swoops in. Wait a minute, what the hell? 
Thor claims his wounds delayed him. So Loki suggests, hey, well, maybe we could use a recess. You know, figuring that the still injured Thor might need some time, but mainly realizing he's going to take some time to figure out just what happened here because he's pretty sure Thor got turned into a frog. Yeah, but the Grand Thane thinks that Loki has yet again made a very wise suggestion and grants a recess for one week. Now, Loki wants to know what's up, so he follows this new Thor and Heimdall back to Heimdall's house where they're going to talk, figuring he can eavesdrop like a Teen Titan or something. Yeah, he is like a Teen Titan. He's like Beast Boy because he transforms into a fly. But unfortunately, Heimdall seals his doorway with his ruse sword. Rats. Foiled again, Loki. So Loki can't get in and he ponders what to do and notices that Mjolnir is on a nearby end table. Just for kicks, he turns back into his human form and picks it up. That's right, he picks up Mjolnir. A spurious hammer. A spurious Thor. And I, Loki the crafty, was nearly undone by it. Ah, Heimdall, if only you had turned your talents in another direction. We could have conquered the nine worlds together. But instead, you have delivered Asgard into my very hands. And Loki places a spell on the hammer and then flies, ha ha ha, he turns into a fly again, to the window and sees that Harrokin is the impersonator. Yeah, you remember Harrokin, the leader of the Anheriar? Apparently, I hadn't realized, but he looks exactly like Thor, except they have different colored hair. And this was actually a plot point way back in the day in Thor when Harrokin first appeared. He was a villain and Thor ended up changing his hair color to take Harrokin's place to, like, infiltrate the bad guy army. I had no idea. That is pretty awesome, but to be fair, like, in this run so far, Harrikin's always wearing his helmet with his mask, so, you know, we haven't really been able to see the resemblance. In fact, there is one. Now, back in New York, the war continues. As the frogs turn and run, much to the glee of the rats, the rats are going to slaughter the frogs. And the rat says, From here, we can spread out and take over every park in the city. And then we'll take the streets, we'll take the buildings, we'll take New York! He's having a real Howard Dean moment here. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But suddenly, the alligators come out of the bushes! Run! Run for your lives! It's the dragons! And most of them get eaten while Thor watches impassively. This is some hardcore stuff going on here. It is a rat slaughter. This was almost my most metal moment of the episode because there's nothing more metal than watching your enemies get eaten by alligators without even blinking. Oh man, I'm sure there are at least three metal songs about exactly that. (laughs) But Thor muses that now he must find a human who can call the police about the alligators because, I mean, you know, it's better than rat poison, but there are in fact alligators loose in the freaking park. But he's interrupted from his train of thought when the piper throws a rock at him and regains his flute. Now, Thor easily leaps away from the rock. I mean, he's no ordinary frog. As he says over and over again, in case we forgot. And the piper tells Thor that he believes Thor can understand what he's saying. And furthermore, he's pretty sure he knows who this frog really is. And then the piper shares more about himself. It turns out that he is a Morlock. And he's watched Thor risk his life to save his brothers and sisters. And so he offers his help in the future before leading the alligators away with song. Yeah, so Morlocks, those are mutants like an X-Men who live under the streets of New York. They're the sort of outcast mutants either because they look really weird or some other reason they can't really integrate with society. So it's a cool little crossover. But the scene where the piper leads all the animals away, I love the way this is drawn because it's a few identical panels in terms of the background as we see the piper walk from the left side of the page to the right, 
followed by alligators, followed by rats. And they're all just drawn as silhouettes in front of this green background. It, it's got a sort of fairy tale quality to it, which makes sense. I mean, there are so many fairy tales about characters just like the Piper. Yeah, it actually kind of looks like a children's book there. It's really cool. Except a children's book where a whole lot of rats just got torn to shreds by alligators. Now you're giving me Watership Down flashbacks. Ah! Oh, it just all comes back. <laughs> but Thor returns with Puddlegulp to the others, and it turns out that they want to kind of have an all thing of their own. Yeah, their king has died. They need a new ruler. And after everything Thor did, everybody's pretty sure it should be him. Even Bug-Eye, the Loki equivalent, is all about Thor taking over. And of course, the princess would like it too. Would you stay, Thor, and rule the frogs with me? I... I would like it. Very much. And this panel is adorable. There are hearts above her head. It's true frog romance. <laughs> I love it so much. And Thor lets her down easily, saying... Lady Queen, you do me a great honor. But my place is not here. I am a wayfarer who has already tarried overlong amongst you. And I must be gone. Next, Thor, as a frog, gives them a rousing speech about the rewards of fighting adversity and in believing in themselves, and he hops off. And Puddlegull pops after Thor for a little bit and joins him to say goodbye, and also to reveal that Puddlegulp used to be a human who was turned into a frog by an angry fortune teller, but he prefers being a frog to income taxes and muggers, although he does miss football. And I do love that this is just sort of thrown in here as a sure why not. I mean, at this point, we've accepted so many strange things that we're like, yeah, okay, I, I totally buy that. Yeah, it was pretty great because I kind of thought his more human vernacular and his kind of pop culture knowledge was just thrown in there to be funny because he didn't sound like any of the other frogs. But it turns out there's kind of a good reason for that. And if you enjoy Puddle Gulp, and if you enjoy Frog Thor, okay, so in Earth 616, that's the main Marvel Universe, the main reality that this comic takes place in, Puddle Gulp is just Puddle Gulp. However, in the universe of the Pet Avengers and a surprising number of additional alternate universes, Puddle Gulp finds a shard of Mjolnir that got knocked off the hammer during a battle in the park, and he lifts it, and it becomes Frog Mjolnir, and he becomes the new Frog Thor and joins the Pet Avengers and is super heroic, and they find, like, the Infinity Gems and stuff. Well, and you said he had a very uh, special alter ego name as well, right? That's right, because we find out in all of the This Frog Thor comics that Puddlegulp's original name was Simon Walterson. <laughs> that is perfect. It's such a ridiculous, wonderful homage, and given that this story exists, I kind of feel like a ridiculous homage is probably the way to go. Someone has been dying to do this forever. It's like uh, Kurt Busiek's... You know, Kirpusik's plan to bring back Jean Grey. Exactly. But meanwhile, in an alley near the Avengers Mansion, Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder are discussing how long they will wait for the frog, which is hilarious. And of course, the other one says, we'll wait as long as we need to. The frog will find us eventually. And indeed, Thor does find his chariot and his goats, but he's not sure what to do. However, the goats have a suggestion. They say, hey, by the way, Mjolnir is still here. Maybe you can use that to get yourself out of this predicament. So here we have Thor, a large frog, but nonetheless a frog, and an Uru metal hammer forged from the heart of a star on the ground. And to make circumstances even more dire, the remainder of the rats have found Thor and they are advancing on him as he squeezes his back underneath the handle of the hammer and strains mightily to lift it. And I never knew that you could show such strain and dedication and heroism 
on the face of a frog, but damn if Walter Simonson doesn't do exactly that. You are rooting so hard for this frog that he'll be able to lift this hammer, and maybe that'll somehow help him out as these hordes of rats descend upon him, wanting to tear him apart after what he did, after the decimation he inflicted upon their entire group. It's it's a race against time. Will Thor be worthy enough, as a frog even, to lift this hammer before the end comes? And Thor croaks out. Shall Loki at long last have the final laugh? It rises. The hammer rises. Now is the moment when I must grasp Mjolnir's handle. Father Odin, wherever you are, hear a warrior's plea and grant thy son his birthright. And with a giant crack doom he turns into Frog Thor, and it is beautiful. Because before, he was Thor, who was a frog. And now... He is a giant goddamn frog wearing Thor's outfit, hammer, cape, helmet, and everything. Yeah, seriously, he is, as they specify in the next issue, a six-foot-six-inch frog, Thor. And thus, victory comes to the son of Asgard, and our plot continues into Thor number 366. Now, it has a title, but the title is just an answer to the question on the cover. What do you call a six-foot-six-inch fighting mad frog? Sir. Well, of course, and he can sit wherever he wants. For days and days, Thor valiantly leads his war goats through the cosmic storms raging between Midgard and Asgard. It's such dedication, it's such anguish and agony, and he is relentless in his attempts to get back to Asgard and stop great evil and superheroic. And he's a frog this whole time. Again, the mixture between the deadly serious content and the fact that Thor is a giant frog is ridiculous and amazing and so good. Now, Loki hasn't been wasting his time because in his keep at the edge of Asgard, he's talking to a shadowy figure. As Loki villain splains, he's enchanted the false Mjolnir to do his own bidding. However, if that doesn't work, he's keeping the shadowy guest as a secret, just in case he needs him to come in. Could that be relevant later? Nah, probably not. I'm sure it's nothing. <laughs> Meanwhile, Heimdall and the Warriors 3 meet at the edge of the shattered Rainbow Bridge. They agree that Hurricane would be Thor one more time, and then they'll see what happens. Because, you know, even though the threat is great that Loki could become the ruler, they're still too ethical to actually promote a fake Thor to the throne. Heimdall asks Volstagg if he's had a chance to check on the great sword that he told the Warriors 3 about, and Volstagg admits that he forgot because his daughter, Hildy, ever since she went on her expedition, she's been deathly ill. She's practically on her deathbed, as are all the other children who went along there. And Volstagg is heartbroken. His children, his family are his life. But Heimdall points out that if Loki was channeling the sword, he may be the one behind the illness. And Volstagg is suddenly galvanized by absolute fury. Volstagg normally comes off as a real goofy dude, and I get the impression that's how he likes it. That's the persona he enjoys putting forth. But in a situation like this, we see that rage that Walter Simonson draws on characters' faces so well. And he springs into action. Despite his wife Hildegund's, or Gundren's, protests, he straps Hildy to his chest with this amazing baby carrier that must be like several, several, several yards to get around his impressive form. And they stride forth to find a cure. And a serious Volstagg is really, really impressive. However, he realizes that 
Hildy is in a bad way, not just physically, but also psychologically. She's worried that she must be so heavy. She feels as heavy as Mjolnir itself. Is her father going to be okay? Nonsense, little one. To one of Volstagg's mighty girth, you are but the lightest of feathers, lighter than the light elves themselves. Now, you shall be my little hound, and I shall be the bellowing hunter who follows you into the wilderness. Haroo! Volstagg is the best dad. He really is. He makes everything fun, even almost dying and looking for a big evil sword. But back in Asgard, all things wait for no man. And Loki speaks to the assembled crowd, to the assembled basically everybody in Asgard, saying that he's had a change of heart. He realized as he faced Surtur alone. Remember that time he faced Surtur alone and was totally a hero? Yeah, mm. you know, that time. <laughs> he realized how much he loved Asgard and wanted to protect it, not oppose it. He wanted to lead it into a glorious future. And to prove this change of heart, he reaches over to the silent Thor standing next to him and grabs Mjolnir and lifts it and spins it about and impressively throws it into the sky. The crowd marvels. If Loki can lift Mjolnir, he must be worthy. I mean, the last dude that did that who wasn't Thor or Odin was Beta Ray Bill, and that dude was totally worthy. And here we see the Warriors 3 were already worried about their deception with Harrikin, and now it's returned to bite them because they can't contradict Loki without revealing that this is a fake Thor and a fake Mjolnir, so they're kind of trapped right now. They don't know what to do. They have no options. If only some hero from afar would suddenly arrive to throw a monkey wrench into Loki's plan. Now we have one page that is just a huge image of a big red cape. And it is Frog Thor just flying into the amphitheater where he grabs Loki and keeps flying. Everyone in the audience goes to their horses and their weapons. Someone has dared disrupt the all thing and kidnap one of the heirs of Odin? This will not do! Heimdall keeps his head. He knows when to cut his losses. He tells Harrokin to go dethor himself immediately. Thor, far, far away, smashes Loki to the ground. But Loki? I mean, he's maybe a little scared and a little disappointed, but mainly he's super entertained. How many Asgardians would abide a frog as ruler of the Golden Realm, regardless of its nobility? Another name might help. May we not refer to Thor henceforth as the mighty frog of thunder? And Loki also gloats that his subtle spells that he's been weaving will make all of the Asgardians inclined to believe everything he says, including that he had nothing to do with it. What'll also help is a new spell as he zaps Thor again to regress Thor's mind to that of a frog. And what's impressive about Loki is that he never stops scheming. No matter what goes wrong no matter what goes right when he's thinking to turn left his brain is just like the maps app he just goes rerouting 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 and he immediately takes another tact however this doesn't work out so well because thor is now just an animal mentally as well as physically animals tend to be a little less restrained and this is one with both mjolnir and the belt of freaking strength Thor goes into a berserker, or perhaps frog-zerker rage, and starts pounding the crap out of Loki. And Loki is screwed, as Thor emits a mighty... Chugarumph! Fortunately, Volstagg and Hildy have reached Twilight, but she falls unconscious. I mean, getting closer and closer, she's getting sicker and sicker, and Volstagg himself suddenly succumbs to fever and fatigue, and he leans against the rocks, causing an avalanche! 
I really enjoy the way these sound effects are portrayed across a few panels as the avalanche builds and builds. Through a combination of lowercase and uppercase letters and different kinds of fonts and font sizes, we have... Splock. Splath. Plink. Black. Kathak. Carb. Lamb. Wahoom. Bucketh room. Grrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrrr
curse is there smashing stuff. But first, I want to go to the narration that brings us into hell, because this is some of my favorite Simonsonian narration. Here, the souls of those who died the straw death, far from the clamor and glory of battle, come to bewail their lost youth and wander lonely that cold and dreadful place, as insubstantial as restless dreams, where even the echoes are without sound. But there is a sound, and that sound is sort of a cackroom as Curse smashes everything, looking for Malekith, looking for the man he now realizes was responsible for his near death. And Hela is enraged. I mean, Curse is smashing up her whole land, and she commands her warriors to drive him out of hell and swears additional double-secret vengeance against Thor, figuring correctly that this is his doing. And so we leave this arc with Baldur chosen to be the new king of Asgard, with Loki enacting yet another fiendish plan, and with Hela even more pissed off against the God of Thunder. These things and more will continue. However, before we end this episode, as always, we must bring you our Recognitions of Merit. And we start with the Crack-A-Doom Award. Take it away, Miles. So, my runner-up, I think, has to be from Thor number 366, which is the sound effect Splatham, which is where Frog Thor smashes through Loki's spells and floors Loki himself. But I think the main reason I like that sound effect is that if you pronounce it a different kind of phonetically, it's Splatham, which is way funnier. <laughs> Try saying it. Just pause the podcast. Splatham. Perfect. I would not want that in a sandwich. That sounds dirty. Oh, yeah. That's just not hygienic. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to have to do is go with a variation of this award's namesake. Because the Crack-A-Doom, with the bonus letter U in the Doom, before it was Super Voltron Odin Brothers smashing their sword into Surtur's sword Twilight. Now, it is a frog named Thor turning into Frog Thor. Once again, we have epic glory paired with anthropomorphic frogs and it makes me so happy and i never get sick of yelling crack a doom <laughs> next elizabeth tell us about the winner of hell's haberdashery so i'm gonna do something we have yet to do in our whole podcast run i am choosing yes thor's helmet but on a frog and i choose this because it is a beautiful dramatic you know epic tense moment will frog thor you know be able to lift the hammer and then he does boom he transforms into a giant frog wearing thor's hat on one hand it's deadly serious and on the other it is completely ridiculous and it's the winner next miles has the whatsoever holds this hammer I once again have a runner-up for the worthiest object in this arc, and that's got to be Loki's giant realm-traversing laser gun that he shoots the ironing lady with. I mean, okay, it's first of all got a Cerebro helmet and crosshair eyepiece, in addition to being probably far larger than it would ever need to be for just shooting sort of a magic zappy thing across realms, but it can also target a person ironing in their house, brainwash them, and imbue them with frog-transforming lips, and it's stylish as well. Loki sold separately. My winner, though, has to be from number 364, and that is the all-things scepter holder, which Frigga deposits the scepter into above her head. Now, we know that inanimate objects can hold Mjolnir, and Odin's scepter's kinda like Mjolnir in that it's an Asgard bludgeoning implement, so it's already proximal to the whole lifting the hammer thing to begin with. But mainly, I love how much it feels like part of, again, some kind of a, a playset, 
and how much it just solemnifies the ritual of the all thing. It's cool looking, it fits the metaphor, it makes me think about claw games, which I always approve of as long as I'm not actually having to play them. And I mean, the scepter is now held by no god, it's just held by this thing. The all thing is sanctified, the all thing begins, and claw games are really unfair. We'll finish, Elizabeth, with this arc's most metal moment. And I had to go with, even though it's a scene that made me very uncomfortable personally, as the mother of a young daughter, Katie Power being powered up by Bill and Thor. I mean, it really underscored the gravity of the moment that they were willing to risk a young child's life and to Katie Power's inherent, you know, power and grit and determination to see her there between Mjolnir and Stormbreaker with them pouring energy into her and her trembling and frowning and sweating and finally persevering and shooting all that power into curse. You know, it doesn't get more metal than that. Katie Power, you are metal as hell, as if there was <laughs> ever any doubt. It's true. And with that, we leave you as visions of Frog Thor shall hopefully dance through your head for many days to come. But next time, in the Balder the Brave miniseries, which you'll be able to hear about thanks to our generous Indiegogo supporters, Balder returns from hell to a different Nornheim than the one he left. Utgard Loki and the Frost Giants, Agnar and Balder, the unstoppable team, and so many awesome Carnilla hats. This has been, and shall ever be, The The Lightning Lightning and and the the Storm! The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then, fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! For Asgard!